Well, welcome to the next episode of our Christ-centred cosmic civilization, and we're going to continue to think through this big vision of Colossians chapter 1, but we're going to first go back to Proverbs chapter 8 to get something of the ancient uh, view of this idea of Christ at the centre of the whole cosmos. It, it of course, is there on the first page of the Bible, and, and in a subsequent uh, uh, time we'll we'll have a look at that. But for now, we're going to look at Proverbs uh, chapter 8. And this part of the Bible, Proverbs 8, literally caused riots in the docks of the Mediterranean world in the 4th century. Because it goes to the very heart of life, this vision of the divine craftsman, the wisdom and word who holds all things together. This idea that there's the word and the wisdom of God, the um, the Son and the Spirit, the two go together, but the Son filled with the Spirit, that's the craftsman of creation. Now, if Jesus really is the divine craftsman, then everything's different than we are led to believe. If Jesus is the logic of the universe, the eternal uh, word who is wise of God, then all kind of human wisdom has to be set aside, really, because what do we know? What do we know? We need to begin again with this much, much bigger and more solid wisdom that's strong enough to order the whole cosmos. In this whole podcast series, what we are going to see is the consequences of doing that, starting with the divine Logos, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look back through history all over the world and see that when people do that, their minds expand. Huge advances are possible in civilization. But when we abandon that and attempt to find some other basis of wisdom, uh, huge problems happen and civilization uh, decays. Well, Proverbs 8 then. Proverbs 8.22 um it begins with the assertion that the living God possessed this divine logic um, from the very beginning of his ways. And that the starting point for all his ways is this divine craftsman, that when the Lord, um, the living God is about to do anything, he brings forth this word that everything he does, basically, is done through his word in the power of the Spirit. Well, we'll see this. Let's read. I'm just going to read Proverbs 8. I'm going to actually uh, go down to verse 36 because um, I was going to end at verse 31, where the craftsman rejoices in the world and delights in humanity. But if we just read those in the next few verses, it's unmistakable who is being spoken of. But let's have, I'm just going to read it, Proverbs 8 from verse 22. Uh, and it's this, it's Christ speaking um, in, in this role of the divine craftsman. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before 
his deeds of old, or he brought me forth at the very beginning of his works. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths. I was given birth when there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then... I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, the whole universe, and delighting in humanity. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me, find life. Those who find me receive favour, grace from the Lord. And those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me, love death. Well, there it is. There's this uh, amazing vision there of the Son being eternally begotten of the Father, constantly begotten of the Father from before the universe began, as the universe begins. He's begotten of his Father uh, at different times, like uh, at his birth, at his baptism, at his resurrection, at his ascension. He's always being born of his father, the father always utterly delighted to see his newborn, almost, son. Uh, And we're given a glimpse there into some of the depths of the dynamic of the Trinity. But nevertheless, the key thing there is not so much the, the son's relation to the father, but the son's relation to the whole of creation and how as he's sort of writing in the logic of the universe, setting the boundaries, the foundation, reveling in the universe and enjoying humanity. And he's the logic, the light and life of all creation. So this vision of the divine craftsman who formed all things and holds them all together, that is the backstory for Jesus of Nazareth. John, in his gospel, opens with that backstory. Well, really, John, in his opening to his gospel, goes back to Genesis 1 and says, look, there's the backstory of Jesus of Nazareth. But here, if you listen to this slightly fuller explanation and uh, beautiful form of Proverbs 8, we get that backstory. It's an explanation for why Jesus so effortlessly walked on water, controlled the weather, fixed all human bodies, answered every question, even overcame death itself. And so no one ever has a big enough view 
of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we just wanted to fill that out a bit. And we will uh, perhaps look at um, some of the later chapters of Job. Uh, maybe Job 38. That's another tremendous vision of this Lord who is able to say, look, um, were you there at the creation of the universe? Did you write the logic into all things? Um, because, of course, the question, who did do that? Who wrote the logic of the universe, who who established everything and designed the animals and made them what they are? And of course, the answer to all those questions is Jesus. You know, Job 38 verse 4, were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across the cosmos? On what were its foundations set? Who laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors? Uh, When I made the clouds its garment, um, when I fixed limits and so on. Have you given orders to the morning, verse 12, or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Uh, and so on. All through that chapter, it's this simple uh, analysis of so many of the depths and heights and regularities and patterns of creation, and this acknowledgement that this Lord, who is the eternal Son, the, the logic, the divine logic, the one sent forth from the Father to accomplish his designs and dreams, that one is able to challenge Job and say, look, I have written in the logic of the universe. I can explain it all. I established its mysteries and wonders and its boundaries and limits. I understand things much more deeply than you do, Job, Um, and so on. Right, well, all of this then is the backstory of Jesus of Nazareth. And then what Paul does in Colossians chapter one, because we're still really thinking through that big vision of Jesus in Colossians chapter one. um, The Apostle Paul there is trying to capture something of that very ancient vision of the divine Messiah that from Proverbs 8, Job 38, Genesis one and so on, Exodus with the tabernacle, all of that. The vision of Jesus as the foundation and the pinnacle, the depth and height of everything in heaven and earth. So it's Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Let's just remind ourselves of a few bits of that. The Son is the visible form of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. And then just it's nice just to have that verse 23 when he says that you will be without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. And then notice this. This is the gospel that you heard and the gospel that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. 
and of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. So just that tantalising idea there in verse 23 that the gospel is kind of written into creation itself and is proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Every creature under heaven knows the gospel. How can that be? How can that be if the gospel is merely uh, something to do with a a human being who lived 2,000 years ago? It can only be true if that human being is the one who actually created all things and wrote into creation patterns of seeds dying and then being resurrected into these glorious new forms and so on and so forth. We'll look at that in more detail in a future one. So in these verses, the Apostle Paul then is holding up for us a picture of the Lord Jesus as the centre and logic of the whole creation. And we, we do live in an age, in a world where there are just endless opinions, endless ideas, endless arguments How could we ever find out what's really true? What does hold it all together? What's the underlying truth that can make sense of everything, that can settle arguments so that there is the genuine prospect of getting to uh, something like a real answer to our questions? So, but that question, what holds everything together and and, uh, guarantees rationality and truth? That's exactly the kind of problem that the ancient Christians in Colossae were dealing with. The Colossian church was tied up in knots about all the different powers and philosophies in the world. They lived in a pagan city that had obviously all kinds of pagan shrines and cults and temples and idols. And if we pay attention to this Borken, also the things we learn about this area of the world in the rest of the New Testament. Um, But particularly here in Colossians, it's obvious that they had all kinds of theories of the universe, philosophies of the spiritual realms, teachings of religion, systems of speculative thought, and they seem to have ideas about how important diets are and how they could, you know, get on the right diet and you'll be tuned into spiritual things or physically energised. And they have, it's obvious that for them, the world is just full of all these ideas and the gods and angels were all mixed together with political power and money forming this very complicated, fragmented vision of the universe. And the idea that all of these things might all make sense, that there's a way of tying together politics and angels and uh, physics and science and philosophy and language, that all of that could be a harmonious unity that would seem impossible to the Colossians. I mean, it was so much like the modern world, full of money, special diets, technology, New Age religion, ideas, conspiracy theories. I mean, you could take, I guess, modern books on angel guides or new diets or systems of self-improvement and they, they'd have done really well in Colossae of the ancient world. So these uh, Colossian Christians were trying, because they were Christians, they believe in Jesus, but 
for them, the world, the cosmos, the heavens and the earth are full of all these complicated theories and ideas and opinions and angels and diets and powers and all kinds of things. And what they're trying to do is they're saying, well, look, the Lord Jesus is really important. Let's see if we can find a, a, a place to fit him in this complicated universe. Uh, and let's try and give him the biggest spot we can in, on, in this marketplace of ideas and, and opinions and uh, different truths, my truth, your truth, their truth, their lived experience, this and all that kind of thing. Um, so they're trying to fit the Lord Jesus Christ into and around all these systems, religions, philosophies, experiences, perspectives. Uh, the Colossians were told that Jesus had to find his, his place within or around or alongside these systems of thought and life. So what's the answer to all this confusion? Is Jesus really going to have to fit in with all the ideas of the world around us? Is Jesus just a part of this very complex, fragmentary, diverse universe? Do we so what is going to make sense of it all? Do we have to try and make sense of all the different parts of life, the universe and everything? Is it just down to us to do the best we can? And that the idea that there is like one big story that makes sense of everything. Well, that may be, you know, do we have to just say, well, that's not available or nobody nobody's come up with such a good story or something do we just have to make the best of it the make just do the best we can with our lives our science our art our technology our law music politics diets philosophy just come up with different ideas for all those things and they're all kind of fragmentary things full of our own opinions and preferences and experiences and then try to fit Jesus into that complex, disjointed picture. Or maybe we could just leave him in a special box marked spiritual and leave him out of real life entirely. Well, that that is so common to do that, uh, to basically find a way of either fitting Jesus into the existing complex ideas that we've come up with and then sort of making him compatible with it or to, and this is very, very common uh, nowadays, is to put him in a box that really has no connection to our world and the complexities of our life so that we get on with our work and study, education, school, university, politics, everything. And really, Jesus, it just you can't speak about him in those spheres because it's as if, well, what's he got to do with any of this? So it's common to speak of spiritual things in a holy voice and then just get on with real life, ordinary life in much the same way that everybody else does, but perhaps with a sprinkling of 
morality over the top. I mean, that's a very common thing that modern Christians do. Basically live more or less the same as everybody else, watch the same things, think essentially the same, behave essentially the same, desire essentially the same. But maybe, yeah, have a little sprinkling of morality and some like, you know, different emphases of morality, depending on politically where we're at or something. But that Jesus isn't really part of that. But um, no, no, that won't do from Colossians 1, Proverbs 8, Genesis 1, Job 38, the whole Bible. No, No, Jesus is not part of something else. Let me repeat that. Jesus is not part of something else. He's not a a bit of a fragmentary picture. Jesus is the big picture. He is the framework that makes sense of everything else. It's like um, Leslie Newbigin came up with this kind of a simple way of expressing what Athanasius was saying when he was explaining why, like Athanasius in the fourth century um, was combating, like it felt like the whole world because what had happened is um, Greek philosophy was considered to be that, Greek philosophy like Platonic, philosophy or Aristotelianism and the, or whatever, Neoplatonism, really. That was considered to be, that's the, that's the nature of reality, Neoplatonism sort of thing. And so how can we fit Jesus into that view of the world? And so um, there were loads of Christians who'd done that and they would say, okay, so uh, given, given this philosophy, Greek philosophy, here we found a way of describing Jesus that fits in with that. And Athanasius explodes against that and says, no, if you do that, you're not going to get the real Jesus. Like the, the kind of Jesus that they'd come up with that fit in with this human philosophy was not the real Jesus. It was a watered-down, diluted Jesus that isn't really God, isn't really able to reveal the truth and hold all things together. Not really, not really, not divine truth, not eternal truth. And so, um, as Leslie Newbigin expressed this idea of Athanasius, the only system that fits Jesus is a system that begins and ends with Jesus. The only system that can contain Jesus is the system that begins with Jesus. Or I think Leslie Newbigin put it like this, the, the only system of thought into which Jesus will fit is the one in which he is the starting point. So when we begin and end with Jesus, then we find that everything else fits into him. Everything else makes sense. Everything we do finds a proper place. But when we begin with any of these other things, 
Nothing really has a proper place. Nothing really makes sense. Nothing fits in. And Jesus doesn't either. You cannot fit Jesus, the real Jesus, as he is in the Gospels. Well, as he is in the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. He won't fit in. Nothing, no, none of these systems and compartments are big enough for this one who is the divine logic from before, from, time, you know, everlasting ages. So we've got King David in Proverbs 8 and Paul in Colossians 1, taking us to the origins, the foundations, the logic of the entire creation. And they want to show us how everything relates to the Lord Jesus. I think that's enough for this second episode. In our third one, we're going to get straight into Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15, and trying to explain that language. 